The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a young trader in the midst of a maelstrom, a man at the end of his rope, and a classic of science fiction back in print. All that, plus we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am your podcast host and Bain Associate Editor, David Afsharirad. This week, Griffin Barber sits down with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller to discuss Fair Trade, the latest novel in the landmark Leaden Universe series, which has been running for decades and which has influenced so many great space operas. The book is out now in hardcover and all your favorite ebook formats. We'll get to the interview soon, but first, the news. The May hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up is Fair Trade by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Jeffrey Gobelin has risen far from despised youngest on a Terran family loot ship to second trader on premier Leaden trade ship, Elthoria. Jethry has inherited a mission from his father, a plan that will allow family loot ships like the one he grew up on to survive the encroachment of Rostov's dust. In this, he is backed by several prominent looper families who are scheduled to meet and plan at the South Axis trade fair. But the mission will be a test of his loyalties as he's thrust into a tangle of gray trading, mistaken identity, misinformation, and galactic politics. And of course, stay tuned to learn more about fair trade when Griffin Barber sits down with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Next up, we have Abbott in Darkness by DJ Butler. John Abbott is all in. He's up to his eyeballs in debt to pay for school, and he's just moved his small family 48 light years from Earth for a plum job with the wealthy interstellar corporation, the Saravar Company. John's first assignment is to discreetly investigate possible corruption at the remote Arrowhawk station, where company traders buy the famous Saravari weave from the three-sided crab-like weavers. He soon finds evidence of theft and worse. But when the guilty parties realize he's getting close, they come after him and his family. With no way back to Earth, the only direction for John Abbott and his family to go is forward into danger. And finally, a classic of science fiction back in print, The City Who Fought by Anne McCaffrey and S.M. Sterling. Simeon was a shell person, the brain who ran space station SSS 900 on the fringes of human space. But things hadn't been going too well lately, and he was more than a little discontented. Though normally he enjoyed his work, these days it seemed boring. To make matters worse, his longtime partner had just retired and he was having a hard time adjusting to his newly assigned brawn, a strong-willed woman named Chana Hap who seemed to feel it her duty to keep him in line. He's buried himself in his favorite pastime, wargaming. Simeon's hobby would soon find unexpected uses when the 
brutal Kolnari attacked the nearby colony planet Bethel. Sheltering the colony's refugees brought the city an invitation to serious trouble with Kolnari pirates, and only Simeon and Chana, working together, can save the city. That's Fair Trade, Abbott in Darkness, and The City Who Fought, all available now. Can't get enough of Anne McCaffrey? To celebrate the reprinting of The City Who Fought, we're offering ebook discounts on all our McCaffrey backlist. For the month of May, get $1 off every Anne McCaffrey novel we publish. Sale ends May 31st, and this discount is good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hello, my name is Griffin Barber. I'm your host today for the Bain Free Radio Hour. Today we're talking with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, authors of a, an enormous body of work, uh, The Leiden Universe, as it's more, most commonly known. Uh, but just to little talk about them first, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have been one of the most prolific writing teams of any era, furnishing more than 20 novels and a number of short stories, novellas, and short novels containing additional content for fans of their Leiden Universe. Uh, it's been over the last 30 plus years that they've been working together. Both have written other well-received works independent of their shared universe, but one gets the impression that the Leiden universe is something of a joyful obsession for both authors. This is manifestly a good thing for fans as uh, we are here to discuss no less than the 24th novel, Fair Trade, forthcoming from Bain Books on May 3rd, 2022. Hello and welcome back, Sharon and Steve. Thank you very much. Hello. So I, we, as we've done before, I have this kind of cool question that I like to ask. Uh, what is the coolest thing about fair trade for each of you? Thing about fair trade, both, Steve. I, I think the the thing that's cool about fair trade is that it kind of tumbled directly out of the uh, <clears throat> the Jethry story that came before, and we had had uh, uh, Jethry was one of the uh, fun things that happened to us when somebody said to us once upon a time, gee, I need a story. And um, Sharon said, I have this character who's been in the back of my head trying to, to, to get a scene. And um, so we did a little short story and it was called Balance of Trade. And it turned out that that story wasn't finished and it ended up oh, three or four years later being a, um, uh, being a novel. And it followed through. There was another an, another novel that followed that, and uh, the whole idea of somebody who wanted to be a trader. We wanted to follow it uh, more closely than we had with the other the other story arcs. So it just mm -hmm. didn't, it had legs. Yeah, for for a kid that we were going to use for about six thousand words and let them go, uh, a tremendous amount. Um. The coolest thing for me about balance of, of listen to me now about fair trade is that um, we got to work the Norbears into a into a kind of a starring role. The Norbears go way back; they go back to the second mm -hmm. novel in the uh, in the Leiden universe, Conflict of Honors, when they were like a throwaway a, a throwaway thing. I needed to populate a pet library, and I just didn't want you know dogs and cats and hamsters. Um, so we had ping horns and we had Norbears, and they were just going to be a Thing. Very cool. So uh, 
you kind of answered this already, Steve, with the uh, exploring the the cool with the characters, or did the cool thing create him? So it sounds like it was a lot of Jeff Jeffrey uh, dictating that there was a, more story to be told there. Is that accurate? <laughs> it is. It is accurate. Jeffrey Jeffrey uh, turned out to be very popular with our fans, and um, not only that. Jethrey was actually an outgrowth of the uh, the crystal section, the crystal books, which were uh, Crystal Soldier and, and Crystal Dragon, which were the precursor books in effect for the entire series, but we didn't write them first. We knew that they were going to be coming, but they were um, they were hanging Jeffrey's around in the background. Jeffrey's kind of a bridge book between between the crystal universe and, and the hmm. current Jaden universe. Well, that was one of the things I, I uh, appreciated about Jeffrey as an aside is I, I grew up in the States and in Europe, you know, and kind of a, feel like a third culture kid. And he's not only, you know, kind of a third culture kid having grown up in one place, but he also has, uh, if not a mixed parentage, then certainly an adoptive heritage that is uh, of both mixed uh, parentage from the Leaden side and the Terran, and even a sub subset of the Terrans with the uh, Loopers. Um, I, I thought that you know, identified with him as a character for that, uh, just because he's he's constantly having to shift gears between his communications with different uh, uh, groups or groupings of people. Uh, really found that fascinating, and again, well done. Um, so the the getting on to your answer, Sharon, with the coolness, the so you were basically like, I, I want to do some more stuff with the Norbears and kind of make them. No, the Norbears have been growing. They they were a throwaway, but they didn't want to be a throwaway. Well, you see how pushy Norbears are, um, <laughs> and they they have kind of had a, a growing presence in in the series as we went along. Um, in at the end of trade secret, balance of trade, trade secret, fair trade, um, the Norbears show up very briefly at the end of trade secret. And Steve then felt compelled, as did Dulcimer, the ship Dulcimer, and Steve then felt compelled to write a short story called Out of True to explain what Dulcimer was doing there at that particular time and what they had in the hold that they didn't want anybody to see. Um, this is, you know, this is how we, um, connect the stories and the, the, something suggests itself where a character says, you know what, you, gotta, you have to tell us, you have to tell people more about us. Yeah. Well, and, and it's one of the things I've noted just in the, the, the small portion I've been able to read of your uh, vast universe is that you do a lot of that, uh, of tying up threads that, you know, you can't necessarily do unless you have the body of work you guys do. So you like, you, oh, there's a thread that I had way back when that I'd like to pull on or that uh, readers like to like to ask about and that kind of stuff. And then you found ways to bring them forward into new stories. That's really neat. Uh, and especially, you know, given a, a long established universe where you're able to still do something new and different. It's neat. Um, so the, uh, without getting too spoilery, one of my favorite parts of, of Fair Trade was the interaction between the crew of Dulcimer and their difficulties in making people crew or otherwise understand that the Norbears uh, they are in contact with are actual people. 
Um, it touched me while most people were not capable of understanding the aliens. Those few who could had to overcome prejudices against themselves in order to champion the others. Um, was that a built-in concept as you wrote it? Or uh, was it, again, like the Norbears are pushing your buttons to try and get you to tell their story? Norbears push, but I think Steve, Steve came up with Squiffy and, and the, um, the fact that she is out of true, that, she, that her family just knows she's the weird one and she counts and she doesn't, she wants to examine things and understand things. And, you know, her family is kind of like, yeah, well, she's a slow one, never mind. She doesn't even have to get, she doesn't have to have a ship's draw. Um, she's lucky we just take her around with us. Um, and the advent of the Norbears and the ability to communicate with the Norbears, which Skiffy has, has helped straighten her thinking out so that she doesn't have as much, as much noise in her head and she's able to fully come into herself. So it's a really beneficial um, kind of relationship with the Norbears. And actually that goes in, it goes back to several other scenes uh, dealing with nor dealing with Norbears, uh, one in which, um, and I can't tell you which book it happens it happens to be in right now, where uh, one of the characters is told, "You come over here and you deal with the Norbears." Well, I don't want to deal with the Norbears. They want they don't want to deal with me. Um, and I have to be a little bit careful because there are books that you haven't seen uh, that, that you haven't seen because they're not, they're not necessarily finished yet. And um, some, since we've got these things started along the way, I think, did, did we publish that one yet or not? You have to that is Patty. That is yep. Patty. They put her, they put her in, uh, in um, yes, Trader's Leap. They put her in charge, in charge of the pet library. They put her, put her specifically in charge of the Norbears because Patty needs to be sorted out. <laughs> and the and, Norbears don't like her, she says. And, um, um, and so that that's already been worked in. And so these other uh, chances to, to work with the Norbears are interesting. And also the other chance to to work with a um, uh, to work with characters who are not everyday strong superior beings and that kind of thing, which which when we started the the um, this series, there were so many strong superior uh, people in all of the everybody was better than everybody else. And you know, you just knew they walked on this the scene that they were going to be super at this or super at that. Right. So we've we've worked in characters along the way who are not super, who in fact who are who have uh, I, I shouldn't say disabilities, but who are other otherwise enabled. Uh, one of the characters that, um, we got to, to work with, for example, was a, a woman who worked in a sort of a trash spaceship where she worked in the, in the yard of a, well, why that? Well, because we know people, we have known people who managed to work doing what they wanted to do or what they needed to do, who were just not uh, presentable in ordinary society, if you will but we're strong people and did what they needed to do. So we'd like to make sure that the, the characters that we, that we deal with 
um, have to interact with people who are not all strong super supermen too, as it were. Right, realism. And that they have to um, come into contact with people who are doing what they want to do on their own terms. Um, because that's an important lesson too. You can't just always do what everybody wants you to do. Yeah. Well, I, I really admired the, the, the Squithy thing and the, that, that progress that she goes through. Uh, it's not only the internal progress that she's going through, but at each, each stage of self-improvement, she's having to indicate for everybody else, hey, man, I, I'm improving because everybody I'm else has <laughs> yeah, fixed in their head. Everybody has a fixed image of what that person's about based on their past experience of that person. And again, it was remarkably well done. I really, really, really liked that. Uh, and using the, the mechanism of the Norbears to kind of help her along, but also kind of saddle her with a problem that only she can solve until such time as, you know, some of the other characters get involved. I, I thought that was remarkably uh, well done and, and neat storytelling for, for the fans. I think they're going to really dig that. Um, and then kind of getting into a little bit of the nitty gritty, there's a, the scene where they're they're forming a circuit. I'm, I'm a huge fan of like collective consciousness things and that kind of thing. So <laughs> Uh, just kind of wondering if you've already worked out whether or not this uh, that circuit increases their processing power or their intelligence, or if it's just for sharing data amongst the participants so that they have a, a smooth flow of information rather than having to speak about it. It's a it's it's a difficult concept, but if if you look at um, meetings where where people are doing. Uh, where where us people you know, currently where people start sharing ideas in a hurry this idea this idea what about this what about this where you where you do brainstorming well what happens did did everybody in the circuit circuit get smarter or is it the the idea of the sharing automatically or the sharing can pull in these these different things and make make the the result of a of a brainstorming session better and stronger well it's 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 part of that. And it's um, part of it we can't go into because we have stories ahead. Okay, cool. That's that's even better news because I want to know more. Um, so uh, getting on beyond that, so did the creation of this arc of stories arise from a desire to further explore individual characters' lives like Jeffrey uh, or the Norbears uh, or the trade portion of the world building that you'd set up or both or combination of all of you? I'm, I'm expecting a yes here. <laughs> Jeffrey did not start as an arc. He started as a short story. Warden Lapine, yeah. Warren Lapine came to us and said, you guys need to write me a story for Absolute Magnitude. And we went, okay. Um, so, so we wrote him a story for Absolute Magnitude. As Steve said, we had this character hanging around um, and an idea for, so how did Liadens and Terrence start trading with each other instead of trying to, to keep aloof from each other because of cultural differences. And we thought, well, that would make a nice little story for, for the magazine. So we wrote that. Um, and this is kind of how things work. Um, it, the story did well for the magazine. That was good. Warren was happy. We were happy. The tech cast, you know, all, all the good things happened for the story. And then Steve Pagel said, um, who was our book editor at the time, our, our publisher at the time, said to us, so what are you writing for me next? And we went, uh, well, we could expand Jeffrey. I mean, there's a show about what happened after the end of the short story. And he went, okay. 
So we wrote a novel. And I think I was lead on that novel. And I said to Steve at the end of the novel, I said, no more teenagers. I'm not writing <laughs> any more teenagers. And Steve said, OK. And we went on and we wrote other things. And a couple of years later, he came and he said, I'm writing the Jeffrey book. I said, you're writing the Jeffrey book. He said, yes, it's like fun. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the, thing with, the thing with teenagers, um, that is to say, we, we worked with uh, Theo, we've worked with Patty, and, and um, some of them were really work to have to do. I mean, you, you, it wasn't a simp necessarily a simple thing to, to try to put, you know, cast yourself back into that, to that moment when you were um, as confused as they were, and, and rightly so. Uh, but Jethri also had the other connections, and he has connections I don't want to give too many spoilers, but he does have connections to the uh, to the crystal books, which were the books that took place before the Leadens left the old universe that was collapsing around them. And um, so he's got a, a very strong connection there, and he's got a very strong connection to the uncle. And um, the uncle has recurring characters. Yeah, and uh, and and the uncle was um was somebody that we that we needed for the crystal books, but it turned out that he was um actually far far more pervasive than that, and we have a number of the characters that, that have done the same thing, uh, so yes, we'd like to go back. It's it's not that we want to go back to the well too often, but rather that we see that the well is there, and we don't have to create entire new people as long as we can find the connections for, for our for ourselves and for our readers. Well and and not being works. not being incredibly familiar with the universe, I really like the uncle. It took a diff different direction than I had anticipated uh, in their conversation, which was kind of fraught in their interactions. That was neat. Um, I you know I like to think I'm not easily surprised and it just it kind of went and took a left turn. I was like, oh okay. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, I don't know if but would people be that are familiar with the uh, more familiar with the universe be less surprised than I was or? Hard to tell. The uncle is a, um, a surprising character by nature. Yeah. Um, being, can I say so old? Um, being so old, he has a really different take on on how things should be, and he's also you know long sight is not even. I'm I'm working with something right now that had the uncle playing in it earlier and the the quote from his sister is yes yuri yuri looks at the ages um <laughs> yeah that's one thing to you know it's always fascinated me is that when you have somebody that's long lived mm -hmm. their mindset's going to be different if they're uh, you know if they think in long term you know think long term I, I always kind of was fascinated with that idea of like, if you lived for a couple hundred years, what would your outlook be on daily aggravations? Would it be more patient or less patient? Because, you, yeah, because you're being aggravated and you have important things to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I'm always kind of fascinated by that. Um, so the, the is this more of an exploration of the trade stuff in this arc uh, than we've seen previously? Is this the first time we're seeing a Congress? Oh, yes. Yes, there's a uh, the the way trading has been shown uh, 
previously has largely been ship to ship or person to person. We've seen uh, Sean um, doing some some trading. We've seen them uh, in in a couple of cases. We've seen um, I have to remember all the names of the ships. There's the, the Balrog, um, having come back from doing some trading. We've seen the different, and um, but those have always been seen as taking place in a in an area where trade goes on, but without seeing the the necessary encumbrances of how do you how do you make money flow? How do you do that kind of thing? Um, so it's a little a little bit of that kind of fill in. Uh, we can't get too involved with it. I will tell you that very early on in the Leiden universe, we had people asking us, well, how much is a contra worth exactly? Right. And that's that's very, very much like saying how much is a dollar worth exactly? Right. How right. much is a dollar worth in Maine and how much is a dollar worth in California? They're exactly. totally yeah. different sums. Absolutely. Well, and and so that that was it, that's interesting to me because I I was like. I was taken in by the whole conference. The Congress was really cool. And it, it rang to me as like, this is something that's going on before because you have characters who have participated in previous ones, but the, that everyone seemed to have certain expectations of what this was about. So it was, again, really well presented and that I felt like it was something you guys had talked about before. And, uh, you know, you weren't blowing by details. You were just providing, yeah, this is the way it is. And the characters are all kind of comfortable with it. And, and it's uh, while it's Jeffrey's first Congress for this particular type of thing, or I think it is his first Congress, right? Right. And he's he's, you know, everybody's telling, well, you know, the pre-Congress and then there's the pre-pre-Congress, which immediately resonated for me for like the bigger conventions. Right. Yep. You know, <laughs> the first few days of the convention or before the convention, it's always everybody sneaking in and, you know, trying to have dinner or whatever with their friends. And, and then it kind of goes up and it picks up in, in pace and intensity. As you go you along, get to the real event, yes. Yeah, and that was that was one thing you conveyed really, really well about this Congress was that was going on. I guess that's a big spoiler, but it's kind of one of the main things that's going on, right? And anybody um, who's into the science fiction dimension knows this. Actually, Jeffrey, in Balance of Trade, Jeffrey um, went from unwanted son of a small sharing trade ship, a loop ship, to the apprentice of a leading trader, um, and. Learn, he's learning simultaneously how to be a trader and how to be a liaison, or at least how to deal with liaisons um, so that he doesn't offend them so he can trade with them. Um, in Trade Secret, he needs to recover a birthright um, from his father's side of the family and decide what to do with that birthright, which will not, that will not offend either liaisons or loopers. Um, in this one, Jeffrey is, is almost having to learn how to be a politician. He and, needs, and needs to get some stuff done and it's really serious life-threatening stuff. And he's got to, he's got to trade on a whole different level. And, and there's a, the additional level of, he's mostly dealt with Trading Liadens and trading Terrans and loopers. And now all of a sudden he's having to deal with the concept of people who live on planets because they want to. Yeah, who would do yeah. that? <laughs> and he's a focal point 
for all of these people trying to figure out what it means, what he's trying to do, and and what they're going to do. Uh, all right, and and what he exactly what he can do for them, not not just what is in for it, but what can you do for me? The uh, there are a couple of scenes where that was illustrated quite clearly with the the, the kinship stuff, where somebody's trying to claim kinship with him, and he's like, "Lady, I I, work. yeah, <laughs> lady, no." <laughs> So again, really fascinating stuff. I thought that was fun. So I, I, I'm glad to know that this is going to turn a page for a bunch of readers or they're going to be able to see the, uh, the how the sausage is made as far as this, uh, uh, the trading system is concerned, uh, without knowing what the value of a dollar is. <laughs> um, so the uh, was that part of the, the whole goal was to kind of show this or is this more of a transition of setup for what comes after in the next couple of books? Well, the next book, David's writing the next book as we sit here. Um, and Jeffrey has a lot on his plate. I can't say much more than that. And uh, <clears throat> we also have, um, um, nope, that's too much of a spoiler. I can't talk too much more about Squithy there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it seems to me that she's on an upward trajectory to learn stuff, but she also has a, a bunch of challenges coming her way that are from left field because she's in a new circumstance. So I was interested to see how that goes, turns out. So I'm going to be, regardless of whether we're doing interviews for this one, this upcoming one, I will be reading it because I want to know uh, what's going on. Um, so is, was there anything that you, uh, as you were working on it, that you were kind of like, well, I, I'm going to need to tackle this further down the road or uh, that you were like really excited about and were kind of, I kind of want to cram it in. <laughs> but we have one, one of the problems, again, because we have um, brought the Norberas in and because we have drawn in, brought in a certain amount of trade, we've now got to be able to show why there's not always a smooth transition from, well, this was 200 years ago or whatever. Why isn't it that much better now? But uh, the, the way the, the universe works is not always uh, straightforward. And uh, it is, there's, uh, I hate to use the word I learned way back when, but it, there's kind of a dialectic going on here where one, mm -hmm. one side says, this is what we're going to do. And the other guy, the other side says, no, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. Yeah. We're doing it. And then the other side says, well, ho, ho, and pushes back again. So that goes on. Um, and that has something that's, that's always been in the books, too, is the fact that progress isn't always isn't straightforward. Just because you've managed to do it this time, you don't always stay where you were. You have to go back and do it again in some cases. Yeah, reinvent the wheel. Problem oh, with saving the world if it doesn't stay safe. Yes. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. Uh, we're just going on to the next. We stumble from emergency to emergency. <laughs> so the uh, I'm I'm also interested in the uh, the loopers. I, I kind of found them fascinating as a as a culture, um, and how their uh, the kinship everything. It, it almost is reminiscent of Romani. Uh, kind of stuff or uh, that kind of thing? <clears throat> um, it, well, they're an insular group um, that has traveled together and they share a culture and they share there's the ongoing joke that all loopers are cousins on Fort. Right. Uh, 
because that's, that makes it easier to deal with output security. Um, oh, no, he's my cousin. I'll take care of him. It's, it's fine. Um, and in a lot of cases, loopers are cousins. They keep, they keep their books, they keep their lineage. As a matter of fact, Jesse has to deal with that at one point because all these people are screaming in saying, hey, we're, we're related. And he's like, I don't know these people. And Presley is having the kids on the ship go through the, go through the books, go through the records and find out is that true or not. No, you don't got to talk to that guy. He's, he's crazy. He's not, he's not related to anybody. Um, <laughs> um, so, but it is a, just because it's a small, weird, insular culture, it doesn't mean that it's not working for the people who live in it. Um, and the setup of the conflict between the administrators who live in worlds and who just can't figure out why you just, you know, space is this real inconvenience and you get on a ship and you go someplace, but you go to the place. You just don't live on the ship. I know it's the point of that. Right. Um, and so just settle on the world. It'll be easier for you. And the loopers are like, no, no, we can't. We have to stay with our ship. Um, yeah. That's where we live. Well, and, and how the administrators try to tie the, the, the planet-born administrators try and tie them up. And, you know, we're going to, we, we just going to, we're going to talk, we're going to keep this in committee until it's too late to do it any other way than the way we want you to do it. I thought was really, really clever because that is a valid tactic that works, <laughs> but it's also really annoying if you're trying to get things done. It's a tear and dirty trick. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, and, I, and was there a particular model that you had in mind for that administrator? I don't know. Um, not, not a, not a single particular person, but rather a, um, a, a set of people. And I will um, bring this back from the larger world of politics down to something a little smaller that I, uh, that I experienced myself when I was at UMBC as curator of science fiction. I was in charge of a great science fiction collection and they so the various departments would come in and steal my money. They would say, okay, we need a little bit more money right now to buy this. We need a little bit more money right now to buy that. And because of the faculty senate and the way much of the things, much of the things work, the, the ability for me to work as an individual collector for the library for the, was, was got, uh, uh, it pretty well got stamped on by people who said, well, we're going to be doing this because we need to expand here, we need to expand here, we need to, and they had voices. And it, it kind of worked like, I, no, I lived through that. Yeah. They, they knew how the system worked, too, yeah. and, they, and they used it. Again, I got that reading it. I, I, it really does read like a kind of a political thriller in, in portions where you're t talking about all this stuff, especially again, from my, from the point of view of just like a con goer and we're all here on our individual business, but we're also trying to talk about these things that are really important. And he's going from panel to panel talking about really important stuff. And then he's having to field, you know, questions from the, the cousin that wants to be. <laughs> I, I just loved that, that whole idea of the, that aspect of, uh, not just politics, but also trying to get something bigger than yourself, more important than any individual off the ground. I, I thought that was just really, really well done. So it, this resonated for me oh, quite a bit in the last couple of weeks as I've been working with other stuff. Uh oh. 
So, you know, as I read it, uh, I really did appreciate some of these sequences. So uh, I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, there's, there's also like, I mean, you, you guys touch on so many different things in this. There's black market or gray market stuff going on. There's, right. there's trying to get clean after being uh, known for being a bad actor or a shady character. And there's trying to people be trying to bring you back into that life. There's trying to people refusing to believe you when you say you're out of that life. I mean, I, I really was impressed at this, at the scope and, and a not terribly long novel of stuff you guys touched on that uh, is really important to, to the human condition. So I, th I think that's kind of the best thing about science fiction and certainly about, uh, you know, this particular story. Like I said, I was really touched by the, the way the aliens, you know, uh, needed a translator, um, and how how those translators weren't necessarily seen as the best people in the first place, and had to overcome just being who they were in order to champion somebody else, which is probably the best way to human growth I can even think of, is to you know in order to help somebody else improve yourself. So again, really cool. Have to do this for somebody else, and we can't screw up. What was, the, what was the other um, quote? Oh, there ain't no money in streets. That was one of the... Right. So uh, I guess we can kind of move from there. There's uh, uh, a lot of cool characters in Fair Trade. Uh, my favorite was kind of a split between Squithy or Fraser, I think it is, the, uh, from the Balrog. Yep. Um, and uh, they're both from that uh, looper culture. But I got the impression that phrases, uh, the Balrog is much more uh, well accepted than in their trade practices, et cetera, than the uh, well connected than the Belsimer and, and that family. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Cool. And again, I like Squithy for the reasons I already talked about that she's, you know, personal growth and trying to help somebody else. Um, which character from this would you most want to meet? I'd actually want to talk to Tran, um, Squiffy's captain, because yeah. he's got a lot. He's got a lot. He's got um, not only is his um, not too bright baby sister suddenly um, she's doing what, um, but the desire to go straight and to um, toe the line and to not fall back into the temptation of making the money because money it's easy to make money gray. It's not easy to make money straight. That's that's just how it is. Um, so I would I would actually like to talk to Chan. He's um, he's coming he's coming along. I was a little afraid for him for a while. And, um, and recovering from an injury and you know the, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. So how are you, Steve? I'm I'm um, I'm writing the follow on. Uh, so it's a little bit of a difficulty for me to, 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 to try to step back right now because I've been dealing with these people and, and putting them on the page. And I'm, I, I'm afraid I'd hesitate to, uh, to try to, to make a favorite right now because they, um, they, they're in my head. Right. And uh, I, you don't I, want to tell, you don't want to tell them that there's a, there's a special one in your place. Dad gloves for the best, you know. <laughs> and and the the other problem there is that if I if I say that this this 
if I designate somebody, I'm afraid that I will then warp the warped words that are coming out of the fingers uh, in that favor. Uh, and I would really want that to stay um to this. There. Um, okay. I, I'm sorry. This is hand motion here. You can't see. I'm doing this as I'm talking, and it's all <laughs> below the camera level. So, uh, so I just hit mute accidentally. Uh, but I, go ahead, Sharon. The Ginobili's. Um, Fresa is is a Ginobili Balrog is a Ginobili ship, and there are lots of Ginobili cousins everywhere. Um, but they are um, a very important family among the Loopers. So yeah, there's there's a a lot of difference between Fresa and Spliffy um, socially and um, even the drive. I mean, Spliffy's drive is to, to help the Norbears and to make sure that, that, that these things that are patently wrong do not continue to be wrong. Um, and Fresa is just a little bulldozer. She is, she is organized out to sea. Um, and well, you know, I, I, I almost had I almost the, you know, Squithy could be Freza in oh. 20 years. Now, yeah, if, if, if things fall decide, right for her. Right? If, if she decides she if she decides she wants to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. So that uh, you know the follow-on question is always, well, so which character would you not want to be? <laughs> would you want to avoid? That's a spoiler for me because the character is new in the book and I would cheerfully murder him. Ah. Um, <laughs> I think I know who that is. Okay. Yeah, um, he's been mentioned before. He's in the book, but he's been mentioned before. But um, and I will tell you that he had a um, an antecedent. He had in um, again um, in my own situation when I when I say this person, uh, I uh, when I write when I write his name down, I am thinking of this one particular person. And who was um, just so overbearing, just so sure, just so willing to kick somebody when they were down, and and I say this as somebody who was literally kicked when I was down um, by that person. So this is this is a, a character that I invest with all all kinds of um, energy. Yeah, <laughs> he comes across that way. That, that character comes across that way. They're they're definitely not somebody you want to hang out with. Uh, and again, those uh, faultless uh, writing as far as portraying an individual and, you know, because their motives are clear. It's just that they choose to go about accomplishing their goals in a really vile way. That's so a, really, you know, why, really cool. why don't you just agree with me? Everything will be <laughs> Exactly. Simpler. And I'm going to remove all your options from agreeing with me if I can. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, very much. Very cool. <laughs> Um, so, uh, which guy, which character would you want as an ally? Oh, the uncle. We always want the uncle as an ally. Except some people don't because he is the uncle and he is too strange and he is too, um, he has a reputation because he knows about all the stuff that's gray market and he knows about the stuff that could be black market. And you don't know why he knows about it. You don't know... So he's not a he's not a careful uh, a careful person to be around, and the, the scouts have have regularly um, had run-ins with the uncle, or because he's there doing what he's doing, 
when they want to be the people who make sure that everything goes their way. For me, for me, he seemed to be almost like a Merlin. Merlin. Oh, his Merlin. Oh, his mellowing. We got to do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the original Merlins were not so mellow. <laughs> yeah, he he just seemed to me like he's a man of mystery. Uh, there's some dark stuff going on there. You don't want to know. I'm not going to yeah. tell you. <laughs> you know, uh, I sleep with dragons, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so, and you're not qualified to do what I do, kid. I, yeah. I really, I thought that was neat. And, and uh, you know, and not necessarily where, you know, the, the, your Jeffrey is necessarily King Arthur, more in the lines <laughs> of he's Morgana. Like, you're not qualified to do the stuff I do, girl. You know, I just, you haven't yeah. done it, you know? <laughs> kind of thing. I, I really, again, like I said, it, it took a different direction than I thought it was going to do. And boy, did I like it. So very cool. Um, so you got uh, all these trade situations and they, they, they especially seem to uh, require uh, changes in mode and changes in cultural accessories and, and how you speak, bowing, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and also fashion, just pretty much everything about how you comport yourself and how you interact is influenced by which uh, people you're trying to communicate between or to. Uh, so given the choice, would you be loopers or liaisons <laughs> in this trader context? Trader context. I'm going to have to go with looper, though, you know, I want to say liaison, but no, looper. Um, because the loopers are doing a much better job accommodating the various um, liaisons in Jeffrey's crew and trying to meet them halfway. Now, Jeffrey, Jeffrey has an unusual crew. Um, then liaisons in general do when they're trying to interact with, with Karens and with other, with, with looper traders. Um, so I, I would have to go there. They're, they're open-minded. <clears throat> I, I would say I would say loopers too, and um, I, I wonder how much of this is from our our own background. When we were um, for for several years, we were book dealers, not only at conventions but at, at at other places, and we were dealing with people who might walk up to you and say, "Hey, look what I just found. Would you like something like this?" And it could be that it was a little gold coin, or it could be that it was an earring, or I just could be because we were working in the edge of flea markets and the edge of um, conventions and the edge of um, respectability. <laughs> which just I said the edge of respectability. Well, sometimes, sometimes yes, even the edge of respectability, and sometimes you had to be somebody would come up and offer you something and you say, mm, we, you know, we really can't afford it. Did just such and such. And you'd kind of look at it and you wonder what truck did that fall off of? And so, no, no, but we, we did have some, some years where we were living in a, um, in the edge situation. And I think we sort of brought some of that, um, to what we've been, to what we've been doing, because most of the people that we actually dealt with who were in that situation were really good people. Yeah. And uh, we tried. So I think that does inform some of what we write. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that that was one of the things that for me, I, I just I, I do like the precision and the knowledge that if you're acting properly, you're treated properly in the Leiden universe. Like it's it's pretty much a given. Like if you say the right things, you will be treated at least this well. 
right? You will be given this amount of courtesy. Yes. Exactly. And I think that's really cool because I, I, I more often than not, I don't know, want to know what a stranger is thinking of me. <laughs> I just want them to be polite, right? Yes, we, want so, we want to interact correctly and get done whatever it is we're getting done. Yeah, let's, let's move on. Let's get to our next thing. So I really, for that particular thing, I really like the lady, but I also like the loopers general acceptance of there's more than one way to do this. There's more than one way to skin a cat and the individual crews and the cousins and the families, they can all figure it out. And when, it, but when push comes to shove, we're about helping each other out, not, you know, enforcing some social pressures to make everybody conform. I thought that was really, again, is a neat aspect of that you're able to kind of point out with Jeffrey and his multiculturality kind of uh, thing he's got going. So well, that's a cool, that's a cool, both of those are really cool answers. Uh, especially the the whole like from from experience right because we write what we know we, we, we delve we into what, our personal experiences of what uh, this might be like um you know despite the fact that well I, at least i know i haven't been a captain of a ship or a trade <laughs> principal <laughs> anything like that so um as a kind of a penultimate question uh, what aside from the entertainment value are you hoping readers will carry with them after reading fair trade That that that's a hard one because I I I don't think I try to hope that they invest any particular thing. Uh, I, I'm we we have found over you know over time yes we've been doing the Leiden stuff since the first one was published in 1988. We have found that people take so much away from the books, um, and some of it's surprising. Some of it uh, we've had people say to us, you know, um, and I, this is a literal thing that several people have said, I was in the hospital and dying. And I told them to bring me your next book, because I wasn't going to die before I read it. And they got better, because they were, and they had something that, well, no, it's not our book that did it, obviously. Right. But the thing is, is that we, we've brought that kind of thing when people come to us and say, I want to use this scene as part of my wedding ceremony is said, okay if we use these phrases in, in our wedding and so you never know quite what what you're going to affect people and in, in, in we just want to write on and and get get the get the material down there and people will take what it take from it what they what they can or what they will oh. and um it's been uh we've had so much support from that uh, I, I i try not to designate what should what people should think, I think. Right. <laughs> and our readers, our readers um, <clears throat> reread our books. Um, they, they hear it all the time. Yes, I just reread the Leiden books. They're so wonderful. I take something, I find something different every time I read one of your books. So I, I think, I think that's the, the, the process. I mean, the process is we write the book, the reader reads the book, and they get, you know, something different than we put down, but it's still a value to them. Yeah, and it continues the legacy of what you've already done as far as providing somebody with entertainment that they can also reread and uh, live for. <laughs> so that's great. I, I really appreciate uh, uh, you guys taking the time to talk with me and uh, speak about uh, fair trade. Uh, just the last question here we have, uh, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you? And uh, obviously we have another uh, trade arc story coming. Um, 
but uh, is there any, uh, is that under contract? Is there a time frame for that? <laughs> just, we, we just signed the contract for three more books. Sweet. For Bain. So, um, so Steve is writing a book. Okay, I'm, I'm working on Trade Lane and Trade Lanes will be turned in in September. Sharon is writing a book which is much further along and which will be turned in in? June. And it is called Salvage Ride. It takes place only in Tinsley Light, which is a, another accidental kind of a, um, an arrangement. It was a short story. Well, it was a, it was a um, epigraph at the top of a, of a chapter first. Wow. And, then it was, and then it was a short story and then it grew from there. Um, cool place, Tinsley Light. Um, and that, that's due in June and it will come out, Sony tells me, um, next spring. And it is likely Sorry. then that, and trade lane will, trade lanes will likely come out next fall. We're, they're trying to see if they can't get it in, in, in the year. Uh, and, um, and the, we'll, be at, we'll be at Worldcon. Yeah, we have train tickets. We, we have our tickets and our rooms set up for Worldcon, so we do intend to be there. And uh, we're also going to be guests of honor in April of uh, next year at a, a convention called Heliosphere, uh -huh. which, is, which is in New York. And yep. it's Jersey. to follow. In I'm New sorry? Jersey. In New Jersey. Oh, that's right, New Jersey. It is the follow-on to the um, to a longtime New York convention, which folded, and so Helios. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that they they were they had folded, and now they're re-upping in New Jersey. I didn't realize. Well, LunaCon, LunaCon um, folded. It was a very long long-running convention, and yeah, I went to it in New York. Okay, yeah. so and they they stopped after a while, and the people um, in the area said, "You know what? We miss going to a con at this time of year, and we're going to have another con." So, they so Heliosphere has asked us to be guests of honor. They're just over their convention from 2022. So if you go to HeliosphereNewYork.com, you're going to find the old uh, the old information up. But they will be coming along sometime very soon, and you'll be able to. Um, uh, get us there and that will be in New Jersey and I'm going to forget Piscataway in Piscataway New Jersey uh, in April and um, after that we're not really uh, we're not really sure where where else we'll be going there's uh, a lot of chance and so much of it depends on the writing schedule these days that uh, well and then the uh, so hopefully somebody might have a, a Sharon Lee, Steve Miller, book in their hand, brand new book for that uh, Heliosphere Guest of Honor junket, right? That yeah. could work. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and uh, can't wait to see your book on shelves and out there in everybody's hands. Thank you Thank very you much. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, 
a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It was the first time Johnny had been in his room since his two-week stint in surgery had begun, but it looked about as he remembered. Heading straight for his bunk, he collapsed gratefully into it, wincing at the unexpectedly loud protest from the bed's springs. Pure imagination, of course, he wasn't that much heavier, despite all the new hardware he was carrying around. Stretching his sore muscles, he gingerly probed the bruises on his arms, wondering if he could survive four more weeks of this. His five roommates arrived a minute or so behind him, coming in as a group and obviously in the middle of comparing notes on the day. "'Tell you all army trainers act like assembly robots,' Callie Halloran was saying as they filed through the door. "'It's part of the toughening up process for the recruits. Psychology, troops, psychology!' "'Fridge on psychology,' Parnofki opined, leaning over the end of his bunk and doing some half-hearted stretching exercises." That whole farrago about eating lunch ten meters up, you call that toughening up? I tell you, Bai just likes making a sweat. It proved you could hang on without devoting your entire attention to your fingers, didn't it? Emil Deutsch countered dryly. Like I said, Halloran nodded. Psychology. Nofke snorted and abandoned his exercises. Hey, Druma, Roland, get in here and join the party. We got just enough time for a round hand of King's Bluff. In a minute... Druma Singh's soft voice called from the bathroom where he and Roland Viljo had vanished. Johnny had noticed the pale blue of heel-quick bandages on Singh's hands when they entered, and guessed Viljo was helping the other change the dressings. "'You too, Mr. Answer Man,' Nofke said, looking in Johnny's direction. "'You know how to play King's Bluff?' "'Answer Man?' "'I know a version of the game, but it may be just a local one,' he told Nofke. "'Well, let's find out,' the other shrugged stepping to the room's circular table and pulling a deck of cards from a satchel sitting there. Come on, Reginine rules say you can't turn down a card game when it's not for money. Since when do Reginine rules apply on Asgard? Viljo demanded as he strolled in from the bathroom. Why not play Earth rules, which state that all games are for money? Airy rules are that you play for real estate, Halloran offered from his bunk. Horizon rules, Johnny began... Let's not reach too far into the Dominion backwaters, eh? Viljo cut him off. Perhaps we should just go to sleep, Singh said, rejoining the group. We'll undoubtedly have a busy day tomorrow. Come on, Deutsch beckoned, joining Nofke at the table. A game will help us all settle down. Besides, it's these little things that help mold people into a team. Psychology, Callie, right? Halloran chuckled, rolling out of bed and back onto his feet. Unfair. All right, I'm in. Come on, Johnny. Up. Druma, roll on. Reginine rules, like the man said. One round only. The game that Nofke described turned out to be almost identical to the King's Bluff Johnny was familiar with, and he felt reasonably confident as they launched into the first hand. Winning was completely unimportant to him, but he very much wanted to play without making any foolish mistakes. Viljo's jibe about the Dominion backwaters had finally crystallized for him exactly why he felt uncomfortable with this group. With the exception of Deutsch, all the others came from worlds older and more distinguished than Horizon. And Deutsch, as the only Cobra trainee from Adirondack, 
had obvious status as native authority on one of the two worlds the Troths had captured. Most of the others weren't as blatant in their condescension as Viljo, but Johnny could sense traces of it in all of them. Proving he could play a competent game of cards might be a first step toward breaking down whatever stereotypes they had of frontier planets in general, and Johnny in particular. Perhaps it was his indifference toward winning, aiding his merely average tactical skills, or perhaps it was small differences in body language giving his bluffs an unexpected edge. Whatever the reason, the round hand wound up being the best he'd ever played. Out of six games, he won one outright, bluff won two others, and lost another only when Nofke stubbornly stayed with a hand that by all rights should have died young. Viljo suggested a second round, virtually demanded one, in fact, but Singh reminded them of the agreed-upon limit, and the game dissolved into a quiet flurry of bedtime preparations. For several minutes after lights out, Johnny replayed the game in his mind, searching every remembered nuance of speech and manner for signs that the social barriers were at least beginning to crack. But he was too tired to make much headway and soon gave up the effort. Still, they could have left him out of the game entirely, and his last thought before drifting off was that the next four weeks might be survivable after all. The first week of training saw a great deal of practice with the servo system, activation of the optical and auditory enhancers, and the first experience with weapons. The small lasers built into their little fingers, the trainees were told, were designed chiefly to be used on metals, but would be equally effective in short-range anti-personnel applications. Bai emphasized that for the moment, the power outputs were being held far below lethal levels, but Johnny found that of limited comfort as he practiced against the easily melted solder targets. With anywhere up to 72 lasers being fired across the range at any given time, it didn't take much imagination to picture what a careless, servo-supplemented twitch of someone's wrist could do. The semi-automatic targeting capabilities when added just made things worse. It was all too easy to shift one's gaze with the variable visual lock activated and wind up firing at the wrong target entirely. But luck, or Bai's training, proved adequate, and by the time the last of those sessions was over, Johnny could stand amid the flickering lights without wincing. At least not much. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the news. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Griffin Barber and praise, thanks and gratitude to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller for talking with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.